0: Once again, I'm David Creech. Welcome back to the final lesson in my presentation of God's Amazing Plan. In this final lesson, what I've called puzzle piece number eight, we're going to talk about our response to the gospel. So how then do we respond to the gospel? How does God expect us to respond to the good news that we have heard it has been said that the gospel is the great divider. I know that every time I present this series of lessons, there are going to be one of two kinds of people. Those that accept it and those that reject it. Those that want it and those that don't. And someone might say, well, what about those that are on the fence about the whole gospel thing? You know, Maybe I don't accept it, but that doesn't mean that I outright reject it. Okay, so maybe we should say that there are three kinds of people. Those that want it, those that don't, and those that are undecided. Well, remember earlier, way back in that introduction to the series, we said that eternity offers only two choices. And deciding not to choose is a choice. Straddling the fence is a choice. Now when it comes to eternity and straddling the fence we need to realize that Satan owns the fence. So how do we tell the difference between those that want the gospel and those that don't want the gospel? Well those that want the gospel obey the gospel. Those that want the gospel are willing to do whatever it takes and to go to whatever lengths are necessary to do what God has told them to do. So one of the points we emphasized in an earlier lesson when we talked about the gospel was that it must be obeyed. And Also remember from an earlier lesson, we pointed out Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26 where Jesus asked the question, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, just two verses prior to that, Jesus said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, self denial is a fundamental principle of Christianity. Our part. In obeying the gospel is that we must be willing to deny ourselves take up our cross and follow him as we see here in Matthew sixteen twenty-four. but what does that even mean how are we supposed to take up our cross and follow him have you ever seen someone today carrying a cross Occasionally, someone gets spotlighted in the news for carrying a cross. Maybe they're in a marathon somewhere, like this guy who came to be known as Marathon Jesus. He ran barefoot in the Boston Marathon, wearing nothing more than a loincloth, which is why I cropped the image, and carrying this cross on his back. Uh, Here he is again in a marathon in Japan you know sometimes they are caught up in their own sort of religious quest or as some have called it a a walking sermon often the crosses they are bearing are, well they're pitiful looking crosses with a a wheel at the base to make them easier to drag around this man known simply as Paul carried this cross from coast to coast all the way across our nation. It was hollow and he carried everything he needed inside of it. He said that it weighed 175 pounds. Now that sounds like a, a feat of, of almost superhuman proportions uh, until you see these wheels that, that made that load a lot more bearable. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to make fun of these men. Uh, obviously, they've gone to great physical expense, possibly personal, and financial sacrifice as well in order to send a message, either to remind people that Christ died on the cross for their sins or that we need to take up our cross and follow him. But again, what did Jesus mean when he said that anyone desiring to come after him must take up his cross and follow him? Did he mean for us to build a cross and and drag it around behind us, like the men in these photos? If so, we see absolutely no example anywhere in the bible of of any of Jesus' disciples ever doing such a thing. Are we supposed to build a cross and and carry it up to the top of a hill somewhere? where we can be nailed to it like he was? Is that what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me? Well, what would that accomplish? Look at what Paul said about this. In in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 11, Paul says, if we died with him, we will also live with him. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, how was Paul crucified with Christ? It is likely that Paul was not even at the scene of the cross. If he was, he certainly never mentions it in his many writings. And even if he was there, he certainly was not a believer at that time. So what could this possibly mean? Well, when we take up our cross and follow him. When we obey the gospel, there's a very real sense that we are reenacting the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. That's what Paul had done. That's what Paul meant when he said, I have been crucified with Christ. So how do we do that? How is it that when we obey the gospel, we are somehow reenacting all of this. Well, first of all, we must be willing to die to sin. That is, we are to be crucified with Christ, nailing who we are right now, the old man of sin, the Bible calls it, to the cross. Today, we might see someone walk by with a cross, and a little while later we might see them come back by carrying that same cross. But in Jesus' day, when someone walked by carrying a cross, they didn't come back. The cross finished them. Second, we must be willing to bury that old man of sin by, by repenting of sin and turning from our sinful ways. And third, just as Jesus rose from the grave, we are to arise and walk in newness of life. Christ did his part, the hard part, the part we could never do. Christ paid that penalty for sin that none of us could ever pay ourselves. And given a thousand lifetimes full of good deeds and great works, we could never pay that price. Why? Because we are not perfect. We are not innocent. We are not without sin. We are not spotless and without blemish. Because of that, we could never be the acceptable sacrifice that he was. The first time we ever sinned against God, we put a stain on our souls that could not be washed away by anything except the blood of Christ. Even in the Old Testament, a sacrifice had to be accompanied by an acknowledgement of guilt, an acknowledgement of sin against God, an acknowledgement of sin that led to a godly sorrow, a godly sorrow that led to repentance, which by definition is a change of heart that leads to a change in direction. In the Old Testament, if they had just taken a lamb, and slaughtered it, and and threw it up on an altar somewhere, and said, here you go, God. Here's that sacrifice you demanded for my sin. you think it would have done them any good? No, the, the Old Testament is riddled with admonitions from God through the prophets that he had become weary of their sacrifices, that in some cases those sacrifices had become even an abomination to him. Why? Because their hearts weren't right. Likewise, under the perfect law of liberty, even the perfect sacrifice of Christ would not help any of us unless we have that same acknowledgement of guilt, an acknowledgement of sin against our Creator. An acknowledgement of sin that leads to a godly sorrow. A godly sorrow that leads to repentance. The kind of repentance that leads to a change of heart, in a change of direction in our lives. The question is Christ died for us. Are we willing to die for him? So, again, when and how. Does all this happen? Well, the answer is in the first part of Romans chapter 6 where it says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into that death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Now note the key phrases that I'll highlight here. Baptized into Christ, baptized into his death, Buried through baptism into death. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, even so we are to be raised and walk in newness of life. In John chapter 3 and verse 5, Jesus Himself said, Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. In Mark 16 and verse 16, Jesus said, He that believes and is baptized will be saved. Now many today teach something completely different from this. They they teach, he that believes is saved, and should be baptized. But is that what Jesus taught? Let's look again at what Jesus actually said. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. As we bring this series of lessons to a close, wouldn't it be great if there were an example somewhere in the Bible of someone being saved. Wouldn't it be great if we could just read that example and do exactly what they did knowing that we could be just as saved as they were? Well there are a number of examples Uh, let's look at one in Acts chapter 8 verses 26 through 39. Now in the interest of time we'll not read that entire account but most of the verses are here on the screen in this set of passages we see a man from ethiopia he was a believer he was a worshiper of god he'd been to jerusalem to worship and was returning home to ethiopia by the way that would have been a journey of considerable distance note that he is studying the scriptures he's reading from the prophet isaiah How easy it would have been for this man who had just completed his annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem to just uh, sort of kick back and relax on that long journey home, possibly thinking to himself, I'm sure glad that's over for another year. But no, we see a man that is hungry for more, continuing to read the scriptures. And as he's doing that, he crosses paths with a Christian Named Philip. In verse 31, we see that this man was not in a saved condition. In verse 39, he is saved. He went on his way rejoicing. So obeying the gospel is as simple as doing what this man did between these verses. What did he do? Well, he listened to the gospel as Philip explained it to him. He expressed an interest in obeying the gospel. He asked the question, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? You know, when it says in verse 35 that Philip preached Jesus to him, we don't know exactly what was said, but it must have included the necessity of water baptism. Otherwise, why would he have asked this question? How would he have known to ask this question? It must have also included the the mode of baptism. Because if, if pouring or sprinkling would have been sufficient, the Ethiopian would have had plenty of water available for that, being on the long journey as he was. He listened to Philip's response. When Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. The Ethiopian responded, I believe that Jesus, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Incidentally, that is the great confession spoken by Peter in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 16. And it was on that very confession that Jesus said he would build his church. And finally we see that he obeyed and was baptized. Like the Ethiopian, we have been on a long and exciting journey of our own, working our way through God's amazing plan. What a journey this has been, and I appreciate that we took that journey together. Just like this man from Ethiopia, you've heard the gospel message today. The question is, now that you've heard it, how do you respond to it? Maybe you have additional questions. Maybe you've decided that yes, you do believe in God. You believe that through this amazing plan, God provided a way of escape from the price of sin and a way that included the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And you believe that you can reenact the death, the burial and the resurrection of Christ by putting that old man of sin to death By by burying that old man of sin in a watery grave of baptism and by arising from that grave to walk in newness of life. If we can help you in any way, let us know through the contact links provided on this webpage. Thank you.